Hey everyone, I hope this finds you healthy and well. I am pumped to share with you this week's episode with the extraordinary Dr. Anna Rubenstein. Dr. Anna is the CEO and the founder of the Rites of Passage Institute. He's got over 30 years of experience as a medical doctor, a counselor, a mentor, a speaker, and a facilitator. The programs he's run has impacted over 350,000 people across the world. It's pretty amazing to think about that. And Anna has played a really important role in mentoring me over the last 10 or so years, both personally and professionally. He's made a profound impact on my life, has drastically shifted how I view the world. He's been there in times for me when I've needed the most, but also has really challenged me and uplifted me into the highest version of myself. This is an awesome conversation with Anna. There's a few giggles involved, but we also talk about things like death, relationships, moving through trauma, and some of the moments that made us, as well as some of the mistakes that really shaped our character. It's an edgy conversation and one I really enjoyed having. Uh, and I think it's also really rare that we get to sit down in front of people who, you know, in my context is a uh, 32-year-old man with someone who is uh, Anna's in his uh, 60th year around the sun, but we get to have a generational conversation and just listen to each other's lived experience and be really honest and raw. So I really enjoyed it and I hope you do too. Speak soon. Great. Well, Anna, uh, this is very exciting having you on the Real Stuff podcast. Uh, You are someone who has supported me literally personally and professionally for I think first time I met you was 22 so geez it's almost coming up nine soon to be 10 years and um, uh, this is a really special moment because uh, in my life um, outside of you know my father figures like it's very rare to find um, strong masculine role models who can act as that mentor and you've really played that role for me over the years in a, a variety of different ways and contexts and uh, I'm really excited to just spend some time with you um, unpacking a little bit about your life but then also opening up some bigger conversations around rites of passage uh, around transformational mindset around education but also your journey stepping into the next levels of your leadership and your eldership as well um, and yeah, I think one of the first tools which you actually ever introduced to me, which is a big part of uh, my culture, my community, is uh, the tool of a check-in. Now, for anybody who's listening, um, a check-in is effectively just giving someone the microphone to literally just speak their truth, whatever's present or alive inside of them. And it's a really beautiful way to ground the conversation, particularly with people you haven't caught up with in a while, but also for people who you're just really tight and close with. The check-in just gives someone the space to just share where they're at. It's a really beautiful way to drop in together. So um, with that opening, Anna, I'd love to check in with you. Fantastic. You want to start or you want me to start? I'd love you to start. All right. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Always happy to see you, Hunter, and really proud of what you've done and what you're doing and, and who you are, importantly. And great to be here in the in the Man Cave offices. Um, I have had a great day already. I um, got picked up at 6am by a good friend of mine who I don't see very often and as we were driving we had a check-in <laughs> and we went to Urban Surf and we had a surf in the wave pool there on the advanced setting and uh, it was great and you know there was 
quite intense the whole thing and there were some waves that I made and as many that I didn't make and I wiped out and, and so there was an edge there and, and I really like that. If it's too easy, well, I can do it all day and if it's too hard and no, I don't get any, but I'm pushing 60 and so for me to find edges that are not going to actually maim me gets more difficult and that are also appropriate you know i don't think it's my thing anymore to be climbing the highest mountains i can be climbing or to you know to be rumbling three guys at once even if it's in fun and all that so i still like that edge you know i still like finding places so i really enjoyed that and it's put me in a good space and looking forward to the day and yeah that's my check-in beautiful thank you uh my check-in uh yeah, I feel really grateful right now. Like I'm really excited to just unravel um, and move past like the formalities of just kicking off a podcast conversation, actually really drop in with you. And I want to, you know, what's alive in me is I want to ask you some questions around manhood and masculinity as a 31-year-old guy that has questions that's just moving through the, the times in my life. So I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever comes out. And... Yeah, I'm at present. My energy's quite good. I just had a um, a beautiful weekend with my partner down in Melbourne, and um, uh, we're moving down to Melbourne, which is awesome. I've spent the last eighteen months in in Sydney, but both stuff and man cave are based in Melbourne. So, since making that decision, I'm noticing yeah, my body is just feeling more relaxed, way less travel than the thousand flights I felt like I caught last year, and. Yesterday I had an awesome day and also it ended with a really confronting conversation. And so, yeah, that conversation left me calling one of my best friends on the walk home and actually just opening up and being in tears with him for a while. And um, there were, yeah, parts of me that just felt really unseen inside of the conversation that I had at the end of the day. And um, it actually, yeah, just brought up some memories from my childhood and, and um, you know, I was really held by my friend as well who got to uh, just, just really listen to me and got to really show me that I can give that love back internally that I wish I had when I was younger and I would never have thought a few years ago that if I got triggered by something it would have actually all the way gone back to my childhood but as we know funny about that (laughs) as we know after (laughs) a bit of time in the ring doing some inner work often you know the roads lead lead back to to the little us so that that energy is alive in me today but um yeah and inside that, what I love about, you know, days or times after I do open up or I get emotional is I actually feel more connected and I feel more grounded. So I'm bringing that into to this check-in too. Great. Good check-in, Hunter. You've learnt well, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just for everybody out there, you shouldn't be rating people's check-ins. But, uh, yeah, beautiful way to check in. Well, I want to... Um, yeah, just pick up the, the theme that already came out of um, what you shared is this idea of a masculine edge. Um, there's something in me, you know, I've had multiple operations from a variety of sporting injuries like broken legs, ACLs, syndesmosis, my left ankle, both shoulders operated on, stress fracture in my back, all before I was about 22. And one of the things that I'm noticing now is there's still this desire in me that's alive to find this masculine edge to not necessarily thrill seek but push myself to the edges of like what's possible but i'm also noticing a tension that my my body's just been through so much 
How do you manage that in um, all of your youthfulness of 60 years old? Not actually 60 years old <laughs> yet. I'm on my 60th year, but I'm cool. still 59 until the end of the year. Um, well, even just thinking about it for a moment and, and even what you said in your check-in around how you felt after uh, emotionally opening up, so being on an emotional edge. And, and I'm really interested in this thing around pain, suffering, vulnerability and how all of those things actually have a direct link into growth. A- and the more more pain and suffering and emotional uh, vulnerability, the greater the potential for growth. A- and, and I see it, especially with men, that actually we want not only an edge, we want to be pushed over the edge. Um, and, you know, I know my whole life I've sought out coaches and people who will take me further than I would go of my own volition. And I'll push myself pretty hard, but it's when I get taken somewhere and, and I don't think I can do it, and then I'm doing it, and then I have to do it more and more, and I actually have to let go of my control over what I'm doing, that afterwards I just feel completely different. And so the first thing is I think... It is actually an inherent part of our masculinity, um, or some of us, because, but anyway, regardless, that finding and then going beyond those edges is a really healthy thing. Now, now one of the problems is that when that's not facilitated or monitored in some way, that we can, if we go so far beyond the edge that we actually fuck up and majorly wound ourselves or kill ourselves or kill others or that sort of thing. That's not okay. So it, it be, first of all, it becomes about finding the edge in an appropriate way and also acknowledging that as we get older, the edge changes. So when I was young, very much the edges I was looking for were physical ones. You know, how fast, how long could I run, how big a wave could I surf, um, how long could I stay awake, how long, you know, that type of edge. And then what I'm finding as I get older... Still interested in that stuff, but now it becomes more about, you know, psychological, emotional, and spiritual edges. And it's about, you know, accepting life as it is and letting go of things and, and seeing that the suffering and, and if someone, you know, like when my mother died, how despite that being a really traumatic event, it was also a, in one of the most beautiful times in my life because there was so much love. So, the edge comes in different ways and um, I think the big thing, thing that we've lost is supporting each other as a community of men to find those edges and I very much feel it's one of the roles of us as elders to be pushing the ones younger than us into their edges but just holding it enough. They talk about the water being hot enough so we get cooked but not so hot that we get burnt. Mm. Uh, and and it's, in, it's an important part of life. Hi, everyone. Just sneaking in with a quick ad to let you know that this episode has been brought to you by Stuff. Now, not only does Stuff have all men's grooming essentials, which are great for yourself or great for gifts, but... 
Stuff funds life-changing mental health programs for young men in need. So the products are vegan, they're cruelty-free, they're the best of nature and science, but they also fund extraordinary and transformative programs for young men who really need them. You can use the code REALSTUFF20, that's REALSTUFF20, all lowercase, via our website, www.websiteofstuff.com to get 20% off, or you can head into your local Woolies or Priceline to find us there. All right, back to the episode. And in a world now where we're spending more time inside, we're spending more time on devices that give us pleasure and what we're noticing is the lack of emotional, social, spiritual um, or a lack of emotional, social and spiritual resilience is there's this, this no testing grounds for us to practice how we move through I think life, but our inner world to reach the next stage of being whatever that may be. So as a, a guy, you know, th- there may be people listening to this who um, are somewhat optimized for growth and they're like, okay, I need to always be pushing myself or I need to find myself in different situations to, I guess, develop my range so I can just put myself in extreme environments and learn from them. But is there like a, in your experience, again, coming from, you know, 31 year old dude, if I, is there a map that I should follow for this? Okay. If I learned that um, I should just follow the, the path that feels right, or can I actually, it sounds weird to say this, but like work the system a bit, like, can I design something or, or a map that'll optimize my spiritual and f- you know, growth or my emotional growth. All right, great. Um, how, how long have we got on this podcast? Can we go two days? <laughs> yeah, by the way, is that right? If we do that, you can do yeah. it multi-part. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think the thing about being a man is, you know, one of the really big things to understand is it's not static. It's not like I'm a man, the work is done. It's an ongoing thing. And I actually look at it that there are stages of life. There are multiple stages, but there are some really big ones from baby to boy to young man to grown-up, potentially to parent, uh, leader, elder and and, um, grandparent. And and those stages will go in a different way for different people, but it's like it's a staircase. And and each of those steps represents one of the stages. Um, And and part of the roadmap and, and the use of the edge if that's what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's something that we can do. You know, I can be pushing myself every day in my exercise routine or in my relationship, and yes, that's a good thing. But then it, it's a different sort of edge that we're talking about as we move from one stage to the next. And, you know, as you know, my passion is rites of passage, and, and rites of passage are fundamentally a transformation. So it's how you transform from one stage to the next and how do you move from this step of being a boy to being a young man or being a young man to actually a grown-up man with real responsibility and, um, you know, able to hold a, a family and, and positions of leadership and things like that. And, and, it, and it's within those transformational spaces that's when the edge really comes into play because what ideally would happen there is we get pushed way beyond our edge Mm. and we get pushed into a place that we haven't been before and we get pushed into a place where we don't have control. And 
there there is a roadmap or we can design a roadmap for that and, and as i said that that stage is different at different stages of life and with, with boys it is very much about a physical stage and, and having studied rites of passage all over the world you know in communities the like in africa the maasai boys had to go out and kill a wild animal with a spear preferably a lion i mean imagine that you're 13 years old, you're out on the savannah, you got a wooden spear and there's a fucking five, six hundred pound angry lion coming at you and you got to kill the thing or it's going to kill you. That's an edge. Um, and, uh, you know, in Vanuatu where they would build t- um, towers out of bamboo and tie vines around the, their ankles and then they had to jump off towards the ground and ideally brush their shoulder on the ground but not break their neck, you know. These are edges, or the Satere Mawe, where the boys would have to stick their hands into gloves and they would have bull ants stuck in these gloves with an incredibly painful bite and they had to dance around in front of the whole community and then the neurotoxin would keep working for 24 hours. So, so these are edges of facing ultimate fear through potential of death or jumping or pain. And, and when I worked as an emergency medicine doctor, this is exactly what I saw boys doing to themselves time and time again but it wasn't facilitated Mm. so they were doing it in their cars or they were doing it getting into street fights or they were doing it jumping off cranes or cliffs into into the water and and unfortunately as an emergency medicine doctor i also saw that at times and way too often it would impact the rest of their lives if not kill them and so you know the real conversation we need to have is who should create these edges yep. for the boys? Do they create their own? Yeah, in Australia we have schoolies at the end of year 12 where they go and they get as drunk as they can and have as much sex if they can get it as they can and no one worries about the impact on the girls they're with or they get in fights, jump off balconies. You know, can we actually create edges for these boys so they get that need met but they don't, you know, am I allowed to swear on this yeah. podcast? They don't fuck themselves up or, or, or fuck up others. And then, you know, as I reach 60, I, I don't need to do those things. The edge I need to do is how do I actually let go of power? Mm. How do I really support your generation? How do I really pass on my knowledge without, you know, trying to beat it into someone but actually give it away? H- how do I let go of the fact that um, I'm not as strong as the young ones anymore. How do I, um, you know, even let go of my physical strength, my intellect, my sexuality? Doesn't mean those things don't stay with me on some level, but you know, that whole le- how do I deal with the fact that I know that death is now coming for me? So my challenge, my edge, is very much a psychological and spiritual one, and. What we need is people in our communities who understand this and who can together create this map for us so that we do move through these stages. Because if we don't, we end up with men who are still acting like boys or teenagers. And it's fine to be a boy when you're a boy. It's fine to be a teenager when you're a teenager. But if you're 40 years old Mm -hmm. and still feel like life is all about me, and, you know, women are there to serve me and for me to do with what, you know, and if I hurt them, who cares? And, you know, I don't have to take responsibility for my family. I can still go out and get as drunk as I want on Saturday night and check out and, you know, all of those things, which we see all over the place. 
that's a big problem and, and that is for me an absolute lack of initiation and, and we end up with men who are actually inside still boys and so we need to be creating that edge and we need to be creating the other things around the edge to support them in that transformation and the way that i view this is like the edge and a safe container of the edge is really a technology of the psyche it's like and it's almost something that oh it is something that's been around for tens of thousands of years that has been honed into our condition to reach that inside where you i know from the experience the rites of passage i've been on where i can't grab onto anything i'm now in uncharted territory where my way of moving through the situation that's at hand whether it's you know spending a few nights in the bush or or being literally taken by older men through a designed ritualistic rite of passage and i'm being confronted with a variety of exercises or activities i'm in in i feel like i'm in no man's land I'm stuck in this middle ground and often the language which I've heard you talk about this is liminal space. So I'd love to hear you talk about what is this concept of liminal space? Yeah, um, great. And it's something that I'm so passionate about and it's this idea that in between one stage and the next is a gap. So we don't go to bed on Friday night as a boy and wake up on Saturday as a man or, you know, we don't sort of wander along and we're not a parent and then we are a parent the next day, even though it can happen overnight, there is a, excuse me, there's a space in between where, um, you know, a, a great example is a caterpillar becoming a butterfly and the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and that cocoon is the space between its life as a caterpillar and its life as a, butterf a butterfly. And they talk about rites of passage and, and rites means it's a ritual way of doing things. It's hopefully a way that's been done for tens, hundreds, thousands of years. And yes, we've lost a lot of that, but we, we need to and we can and we are recreating those rituals. And then it's about creating that passageway from one space to the next and or one stage to the next. And the passageway can last a day, a week, a month. It can last a year. The, the time period doesn't matter. But the, the best way of explaining it is that if you take a cocoon that a caterpillar went into and is going to come out as a butterfly and you cut it open halfway through however long it's in there, you don't find a caterpillar that's losing its legs or a butterfly that's growing wings. You actually find mush and so what's, what, what has to happen is you, everything breaks down. Life as we know it breaks down and then another, another stage of life forms. I'll give you an example. Uh, I got married young when I was 25. I had two children. By 28, 29, I had two boys, one and three years old, in nappies. And it was all going along. And then for whatever reason... Uh, very quickly, uh, my wife and I separated and she's from Canada. She went back to Canada. So all of a sudden, I found myself with a one and a three-year-old in nappies. And my whole vision of one family, one house, stability, you know, it was all mapped out. That, was, that all disappeared and I completely relate to that mush period where nothing made sense anymore and like, what am I going to do? How am I going to look after two boys? What's my life going to be like? You know, a million things. And, and I probably spent nearly six weeks 
in that space. And I, I just had enough energy to look after my boys. A lot of the rest of the time I was either curled up on the ground somewhere or, you know, out wandering in, the, in, in nature, sort of looking around and just being. And, and it was a really distinct period of mush. And then things started coming back into structure again. But, but I was different after that. I, I, every part of me was different. And, and a part of my ego had been, well, completely smashed and changed. My wife left me, you know. I've got to look after two boys. I have to rebuild life in a different way and all of those implications. And so that was an example of life creating the rite of passage and the edge and the mush. And the, the truth is all of us, so every boy is going to go through a rite of passage to become a young man and every young man is going to go through a rite of passage to become a real man and, and every you know, older man is going to go through some sort of rite of passage to become elderly or an elder. And, and what we really need to look at is are we just going to let life do it to us and hope that it works out well and doesn't have major wounds or damaging or can we do it in a healthy, thought-through, facilitated way? And we absolutely can. For sure we can. And, and that's, you know, that's what I'm interested in. Um, and just for a moment, thinking back on that, the, this whole idea of the edge, you know, what we see with the evolution of extreme sports, you know, there's, there's a place where I love extreme sports, but when I watch people wind, you know, when, when, when I was working in emergency medicine, I'd have all these kids come in who, you know, with their bike or their scooter or their motorbike could build a jump or a racetrack or something and they'd, and they'd do their jump and then if they landed it successfully, what's the first thing they do? They make it bigger. Yeah. And they make it bigger until something has to go wrong. And that's not what's supposed – that's that's the wrong way of doing it. They, they keep pushing that edge until there's an accident or there's a it's – not, it's not actually an accident. But they don't have that – you know, there's no support. They're doing it on their own. And then I see this as extended out into the extreme games. We're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and the extreme sports and people are killing themselves. You know, the, the solo climbers who push it, push it, push it. Unfortunately, way too many of them are dying. The base jumpers, they say, once you start base jumping, you have a life expectancy of seven years. Um, how do we manage that stuff so that we create the right edges for people and, and then we can support them up this sort of staircase of life? It makes me think of the sentiment, um, create your own challenges or someone else's will come to get you, yeah. which I really love. It's like, how do we build that into our regular, you know, months, years, processes as we move through these different um, stages of life? And I think the other thing which I always, it's always just very refreshing for me um, when I hear you talk about this is actually just hearing about manhood. And just being talked to and so I can just listen to just a different point of view from someone from a different vantage point. And I think that's also seemingly really rare in today. Not only is rites of passage and healthy rites of passage really rare, but actually a community of older men who speak to younger men about their experience with masculinity and stepping through the different increments of, mas of masculine growth. 
Well, the other thing is that not only is masculinity not static, but masculinity is actually about being in a community that is not just about me. We are all in this community and we all have responsibility for everyone in the community. So it's not just about, you know, guys with, you know, long grey beards and, you know, balding, running all the rites of passage for everyone younger. You know, the guys who are in their 30s, 40s and 50s can abs- and 20s even can absolutely be running the rites of passage for the boys. You know, we are, for teenagers, we are their elders and they will listen to us and... Um, you know, we should almost take a step sideways here and define the elements of a rite of passage Correct. and then come back to how men can be involved in creating healthy rites of passage. And, you know, if, we're, if there is this staircase, we're all on the staircase and we all have responsibility for everybody else on every other step, whether they're younger than us or older than us. Yeah, and I think it challenges the conditioning of this time of the world that we're living in where it is so individualistic and it is not community orientated or necessarily service orientated. It's about wealth um, and status um, acquisition to live the ideal dream life that's been told to us. But I think what I've noticed is like there's, again, this author David Brooks writes about this. He talks about the second mountain and he's like the first mountain you kind of conquer and it's about power and, you know, status and achievement and recognition and significance and you're like, fuck, it's a bit hollow. And then there's the fall down the valley and the valley is where the lessons and the the turmoil and it's almost like the soul's descent and then potentially, you know, the, the mush of the caterpillar takes place down there. And then there's the rebuild, the, the understanding of who I am with a few cuts and scrapes and accessing, again, parts of myself I didn't know existed to move up and elevate into the second mountain, which is about love. It's about community. It's about service, about humility and nobility and, and creating a beautiful family structure if that's the path you choose. But ultimately what I hear in it is it's like a life that's bigger than your own something of service, whatever you choose to channel that as. So the question that I have is, is like, what happened? Like, why are we at this point now where we're like having to kind of pull back this, like this, almost this like ancient technology with respect to First Nations cultures. And we know that this is something that is ingrained in our, you know, collective human experience, this desire to seek out rites of passage or rituals or initiatory experiences. And obviously we see that happen in really um, quite toxic circumstances like we see in like the hazing in American colleges or actually all gangs. gangs. It actually happens in all sorts of places. Um, But the difference is, you know, a lot of those – and and in universities but a lot of those when when it's the peers creating it for each other it's very often a shaming Mm. form of initiation and 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 it shouldn't be about a shaming form of initiation and and actually i don't believe there's just a second mountain i believe it's it's all about up the mountain down into the valley up the mountain down into the valley up the mountain down into the valley and you know i always get frustrated when i go to airports and there are books about you know, how to be happy, healthy and successful, how to make millions of dollars, how to win friends and influence people. There should be another section which is, you know, how to deal with the shit that happens in life, you know, how to overcome trauma, how to, how to work with betrayal, 
whatever those things because you know in life it's not just going to be about doing better and better and better it's also about the events that happen that um, are really challenging and, and don't seem fair but all of those are an opportunity to grow and you see it you see some people who something happens to them and they become a victim to that and it defines them and other people who something happens and they grow from it and they become more beautiful, more loving, more switched on, more focused and, and you know, we've sort of lost that and you, you kind of really defined it in a way already where we're more in a place where we think that possessions are going to keep us happy and we can deny death and, and we now, it's interesting you know, all respect to the Indigenous communities, but also traditional communities, uh, you know, rites of passage, they are an ancient thing and we, we very much need to be bringing them back. Um, and, you know, the, the, the traditional communities, it was the elders who got the most respect. Mm. We now worship the youth and we have songs like Forever Young, I Want to Be Forever Young. I mean, you know, that's... A, that, that's a crime to say, I want to be forever young. So if I'm not young, I'm not happy or I'm not valued um, as opposed to, you know, recognising the elders have wisdom, knowledge and an incredibly important role to play in our community. Um, so I think, we've, you know, there are a lot of things that are switched around, but there are more and more men who are looking for this stuff. Yeah. And there are men who know, hey, it could be done differently. And I didn't get the initiations and the rites of passage and the support that I wanted. But that doesn't mean it's too late to start. And it doesn't mean that I can't help the ones who are younger than me as well. Uh, and the interesting thing with that is that when you look at, you know, if I come back to this staircase model once again, we're all somewhere on the staircase, that when elderly, and elderly can be, you know, 30, 40-year-olds, or 56-year-olds help to create a rite of passage for those younger than them, the young move up, but so do the older ones. So ideally, we're all supposed to be moving up the staircase together. Um, and, and if the young have these experiences and move up the staircase and the ones older than them don't, the risk is they'll push them back. Mm. So we have to be creating space for the young so that they can actually move up the staircase. You know, that's part of what you and I talk about. I know that my role in this work is to be letting go and passing on to you and your organisation, the people who are doing the work. So I actually have to move up and create the space. If I stay here and compete with you and try and... There's a lot of men who will hold back the young ones. I'm sure that there will be men here who have that experience with their own fathers or older men who, who hold them back, who won't give them the space, who compete with them who belittle them who shame them there's all sorts of ways it comes out and it's it's toxic it's wounding and and it it does not do anybody any favors and so you know that that's something we need to be moving past mm. makes me think of just the the concept of like the the masculine wound you know whether it's from like a brother to a brother you know a friendship to a friendship or like a son to a father is so potent and i think finding if and how we do that safe masculine friendships that can still lovingly challenge and speak truth but also can be nurturing and comforting at the same uh, at different times that have that ability to to flex in those different directions is really really important yeah it's such a beautiful thing and 
one of the things I've discovered, um, and I've been researching rites of passage and looking into this whole world for nearly 30 years now, and, and it was enough for me to, to give up my uh, medical practice as a GP and then an emergency medicine doctor, because I, I actually see that this work changes lives. And, and, you know, I was very privileged to be a doctor, and I think it's a noble profession, but the system we're working in is not noble. Mm. And we see that more and more. There are noble people out there, but the system is, you know, a big worry. And I believe in the work that we're talking about, you know, we're, I believe I'm still a doctor, but instead of doing curative medicine in the system, now I'm doing preventative medicine out of the system. A and when we create programs, the more diversity we can have the more we can have people from different steps in lives like the best programs we run have kids anywhere from 13 and we have people in their 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s and if we can get 70 80 year olds and grandparents then we're really cooking with gas mm. and 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 that's when you know it creates like a biosystem it's like if you get a big enough pool of water and it's got all sorts of different things in it it actually functions on its own Whereas when you, when you have you know, monocrops and things like that, they don't work properly. Um, so for me, one of the greatest things that we can do is get men of different ages together, but then what we don't want is a, you know, a dick-swinging competition. We actually want to go, well, how do we be men in these circumstances? And that doesn't mean we can't have fun and we can't celebrate and we can't laugh and everything, but there's also... How do you do the serious work of men well? Mm. Um, and, you know, we were talking about it yesterday. I, I went to a – my first men's gathering was in 1993 and it was about six months after I'd become a single father with my one- and three-year-old boy. <laughs> and, and I went to this gathering and I'd never been to a gathering before but I sort of saw it advertised and then I saw it in the paper and I saw it somewhere else. I was like, okay, three times I'm going to this gathering. And I go along and I think, oh, I wonder what it's going to be like. And basically I was astonished to find um, that all of the men were basically dealing with three, four or five of the same issues. And the issues that I saw going on were, number one, men not having resolved uh, their stuff with their own fathers. So the influence of our fathers was major. So that was the first one, fathers. The second one I saw that men were struggling with is, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Is this it? Is this job? Is this lifestyle? Is this what I'm really on this earth for? And, and how do I find out what I really am supposed to be doing? So that was the second one. The third one is, when am I really going to feel like a man? Like I might look like a man, I might be big and muscly, but inside, do I feel like a man or do I feel like a boy? And... and, and what does it even mean to be a man? There's not even a roadmap and no one's taught us and except John Wayne and mm. you know, those people who can drink lots of beer and get lots of girls and that's not the man I am, so what, what, uh, what do I do? Who am I? That's the third one. The fourth one is how the fuck do I be in a healthy relationship? What does it even mean? You know, Once again, I've got no education on it. My role models weren't great. What, what, what does healthy relationship mean? Uh, and then the last one was, and the fifth one was, if I'm a father or I become a father, how, how do I be a good father? Mm. Like, I don't want to be like the father I had or there are some bits I want and some I don't. How do I do that well? And every man, including me, had pretty much all of those issues going on. 
And that was when I first heard about rites of passage. And someone said, imagine if there'd been something there for me when I was a teenager. And, and as a result of that program, uh, we took 28 men and boys, some, with their, some of the boys with their fathers, some with grandfathers, some on their own. There were some mentors there. We took 28 men and boys out in the bush for three days. And we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but we shared some stories and um, uh, we did some challenges for the boys. And when you say stories, what type of stories? Well, um, we got the men uh, sitting in circle, man, boy, man, boy, man, boy, around a fire. And the first story that we ever shared, I said to the men, okay, let's share a story. And by the way, while we're sharing stories, we're going to use a talking stick. Only one person talks at a time. We just listen. We're going to talk about ourselves, not about problems of society. And this is a confidential conversation. So what gets said in here stays in here. Everyone agreed to that. And the first story was share about what life was like for you when you were the age of the boys here and what was your relationship like with your father. And half the men cried. It was astonishing. These big, tough, strong men who had such unsatisfactory relationships with their fathers to share it was a major thing um, and one or two of the men I think it was only one had an incredible story about their dad mm. a beautiful story and the boys and these were some difficult boys and you know they were boys um, they were about you know 14 15 years old give or take a year or so at the end um, we said to the boys okay uh, and they'd sat there for about two hours. It was astonishing. It just kept going and no one was moving. Everyone was just listening. We said to the boys, you know, if you become a father one day, what would you like your son or daughter to say about you? And the stuff that the boys shared was just beautiful, talking about I would like my son or daughter to say that I was always there for them and I listened to them and I supported them to be who they wanted to be, not who I wanted to be. And it was just, it was profound. Another day, uh, we did a thing where we got a man in, in his 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. I'm not sure if we had a man in their 70s. And we talked about sex and relationships. And we let the boys ask any questions that they wanted to ask. And one of the boys said, how'd you lose your virginity? And we had all, one man, the seven-year-old or the six-year-old, I think he lost his virginity because this is 1994. He lost his virginity in 1947. That <laughs> <laughs> was just extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary, his, his sharing of it. Mm. And another man, you know, lost his virginity when his father sent him down to the local brothel when he was 13 years old. Mm. Has massive shame about it. In fact, most of the men were very unhappy about how they lost their virginity was not a positive experience for them. Mm. Occasionally we would also, and because I've run thousands of these camps now and heard literally tens of thousands of stories, now and then again you hear beautiful stories about men who had a girlfriend they'd been with for years and, and they knew the parents were going to be out one weekend and so they talked about it and they planned it and they set up candles and had a really beautiful experience. And actually, I'll just say it, the most beautiful story I've ever heard of men losing their virginity um, has been uh, a number of religious men who lost their virginity on their wedding night with the love of their life and described it as being a fully spiritual experience. Wow. 
I know it's extraordinary. And for the boys to hear this, and once again, yeah. we're not telling the boys what to do. It's a really important part of sharing stories in the work is we're not telling the boys what to do. We just share our stories. Mm. And, and a big part of my work has been, okay, this rite of passage stuff, it's amazing. And I was running one program here. I could just see it was changing lives. So then when I started doing more research and travel to discover that rites of passage have been done in all Indigenous communities, and they all basically did the same thing. And not only for boys, they would do it at different stages. So whoever was going through the rite of passage would be taken away from the, from the day-to-day community. And a lot of the communities had a space, a special place they'd take, it, take them to, but regardless, they'd always be separated from the community. And then whilst they were separated, they wouldn't come back. They would just stay in their space, in their cocoon, and they'd go through a transformation. And then they would come back and they would be integrated. And in the integration, the whole community would know they'd been through the rite of passage, and they would know. And so they would come back at a different stage and they would be, they would get extra privileges, but they would also have extra responsibilities. And so it was very clear they'd been through their rite of passage. So that, that had already been written about by a man called Arnold van Gennep, a Belgian man who travelled all around the world in the 1800s, doing what I would have loved to have done and looking at communities who were still doing mm. their, their, you know, original rites of passage. So then when I looked at, okay, what, how do you make a transformation? What happens in this stage to really create the rite of passage? And what I discovered was that, first of all, you, you want to have a solid container. So you don't want people coming in and out. You sure as hell don't want mobile phones and stuff like that because that just takes people out of the space. And then there are four elements that I've recognised that are always in that container to create the rite of passage. And the first is the sharing of stories. So when peers share their stories about their life and the things that have the major influences that have shaped them good and bad that creates community and community as we talked about is a major part of being a man being in the community of men and in the wider community so when we hear each other's stories we create community and then the next thing is when elders share their stories about life and the young sit and listen that is actually how we pass on wisdom and knowledge the young, whatever age they are, anywhere after about 11, don't want to be told how to live their lives by their fathers or older men. But they will listen to stories for hours and that's how they get the wisdom and knowledge. So that's the first thing, the sharing of stories. The second is there's always a challenge. And we've talked about challenges in the edge. They are an integral part of a rite of passage, but they would actually be created and facilitated by the elders who would really push these kids or these men, like they, they push them and you want to push them and you want to push them even beyond their edge, but you kind of have a responsibility to bring them back again. Having said that, in a Maasai warrior tribe and lots of the communities, they might send out 20 boys and only get 15 back and they'd say, oh, well, you know, that's how it goes. Mm. And, you know, there wasn't the accountability or OH&S and they believed that, that those, bo- those ones weren't meant to go to the next stage. You know, I need to say in our work, if we take out 20 boys on a program, we have to bring back 20 boys every time. That's the world we live in. But we're losing young men. We're losing young men in cars, to drugs, to suicide, to fights, king hits, to stupid behaviours. We're losing kids. And if we don't create rites of passage, I believe we lose more. So a challenge, an edge is the second part. 
The third part is around creating a vision for who we want to be in the future. You know, how do I want, if I'm moving to become a young man, or if I'm moving from being a, a young man to a, a, an adult man, or if I'm going to get married, or if I'm going to become a father, you know, spending that time thinking about what sort of young man do I want to be? What sort of older man? What sort of father do I want to be? And really thinking about that and feeling into it. I'm currently thinking about what sort of elder I want to be and the principles that I want to take into being an elder. Things like really listening, listening to the young, being generous, you know, with the things that are rare, not just the things I have abundance of, hmm. um, you know, mentoring, sharing stories. So that vision is really important. And the final part in a writer passage is about, uh, it comes from the traditional belief that every person is different and every person has their own unique gifts and talents, their own genius and spirit. And one of our main roles as parents, elders, caregivers, facilitators, rites of passage people is to help the person going through the rite of passage recognise and own and be proud of their unique gifts and talents, their genius and their spirit. So, you know, we can see it in them. You take a group of boys or young men out in nature somewhere for a few days and you see their gifts and they're all different. You know, one's really capable and strong and, and physically, um, uh, you know, um, good. And another one's really kind and caring. Another one's really sharp. Another one's really funny. Another one's really musical. And it's about, you know, we need to tell them, we see you and we're proud of you and we love you for who you are. We're not, you don't have to be like what you see on Snapchat and TikTok. We actually want you to be you. And we celebrate and love the diversity of you know, everybody who's here and that's actually who we want. We want you to be yourself and to bring your gifts to the community. So if we do those things, story, challenge, vision and honouring, we will create a transformation. Mm. And then the integration where they come back, in a lot of communities also they would then be marked and so that everybody knew and they knew. They might wear different clothes or they might get another scar or they might get another tattoo or another earring or something, they knocked a tooth out. But then everybody knows what stage in the progression from child to elder they are actually up to. And, and we can create those rites of passage. And, and I believe we have a fundamental responsibility to be creating those rites of passage. I really want to underline the reintegration piece as well and the community welcoming the young person back through or any person through the experience. And I think that comes back to an earlier thread you shared around if the community doesn't recognise the transformation that's taken place, the community or the community members also don't move up another rung on the ladder. And so what is really important is that this person who's gone through this transformational experience is seen for who they are now, not who they were at the beginning of the ordeal. Correct. We, we have to do that. You know, look, I, I work with a lot of young ones and, and if we do a program and they go on an amazing camp and they push themselves, they do things they didn't think they could do, they hear stories, they create a vision, we honour them and everything and then they go home and, you know, mum and dad doesn't know what happens or their partner hasn't heard about it, then, you know, everybody wants them to be like they were before. I talk to a lot of people who go away travelling or move out of the small town they grew up in and they grow up and they change and they do extraordinary things and then they come back 
and people just see them like they were before and want to treat them like they were before. And, and it's really discombobulating for that person who then often just wants to leave because we're not seen. And so we, we also have sort of hardwired into our society now that if someone grows and evolves, we have a great risk of losing them because by not recognising that growth, they'll go, well, this is not my place anymore. I need to leave to find my people or I'm comfortable or, or feel safe. And that's, that's a big shame because we don't want to lose them. We want them to stay in the community. Or when, you know, it is said, like, you've changed. It's like, well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope so. Like, you know, I've been moving through a lot. I'm growing and I really hope I'm evolving and changing and I'm not who I was X amount of time ago. Yeah. Look, I'll tell you a quick story about poor integration. <laughs> I ran a leadership training overseas in um, Holland. So I do a lot of the rites of passage framework leadership trainings and i do them around the world and we had this beautiful big strong 45 year old guy and he told this amazing story about when he was 15 he played basketball and the team did really well and they got into the state and the national championships or whatever and they played brilliant and they won and he was voted most valuable player he said it was the most extraordinary experience of his life. And, and he went home, caught the train, and however long he had travelled for a day to get home, and he, and he went into his house to tell his dad, and he burst into the living room, and there's his dad, you know, on the, on a, the couch watching the TV, and he goes, Dad, let me tell you. And his dad goes, shh, I'm watching something. And he said in that moment, mm. his whole world just crashed down. Mm. And this big, strong man has tears streaming down his face as he's telling that story. I mean, what a tragedy. You know, it affected him his whole life. Yeah. I travelled overseas when I was 18 for a year. Most brilliant year of my life. I'd been at an all-boys school. All of a sudden, I'm overseas. I was on a leadership training course, 180 kids my age. I lived with a group of Brazilians. I had a Brazilian girlfriend. It was like the best year ever. I came home. I walked into the house, mum says, hi, Anna, you know, put your washing on the machine and dinner's in 45 minutes. And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, and my friends would say, oh, Anna, how's your year away? And I'd say, great. And they'd say, oh, that's really good. Let's go. We're going to go to the pub or we're going to the park to kick a footy. And I'd be going, no, just get me out. You know, I just want to go again. Mm. I just want to leave. And, and, you know, what should have happened yeah. is when I came home, it should have been a big celebration. I should have shown everybody my photos. I should have told stories about what I did, the adventures I had, the trouble that I got into, all of that. And then people would have known and, and appreciated and acknowledged what I'd been through. And I would have known that they'd known it. Mm. But it didn't happen. Mm. And yet you still choose to, to teach, you know, which I think is... Uh, a really important part of a man of service as well is to have the trials and tribulations of where things didn't go well, but you still choose to lean forward and, and educate and use it as a teaching story. Well, it's the wound. This is the wound can also be a sacred wound. Mm. And, we, you know, I know a lot of the work I do is because of the teenage years that I had, yeah. the lack of initiation, the lack of community, the lack of recognition that I was growing, you know, and, and I think... Hopefully I've taken that as something that I've learned from and I want to do differently for my boys and I want to do differently for the boys in the community that I live in. Uh, I, I love that and it's, you know, we, whether it's called the sacred wound or we hear about 
post-traumatic stress and then other language we hear is post-traumatic growth you know it's how do these moments that shape our character actually reveal our character at the same time now i'm curious like your work you've you know you just mentioned personally working with minimum tens of thousands but by extension hundreds of thousands with the amount of people that have been through your leadership program read your book watch your talks all of that i also know that um, for you to be able to hold such spaces, you have to have done your own inner work in which to be able to hold other people through their process. What have been some of the most transformative rites of passage that you've been through? Um, well, there were the ones that were created uh, for me and the ones that I, you know, that I created. Uh, you know, a big transformative one for me was going overseas for a year at 18 and having to really look after myself. Actually, that was big, but even bigger was at 23, I went overseas on my own this time Mm. and travelled around the world. So that was a huge thing. Went into the Amazon jungle and all that. That was massive. Um, Having children, separating, that that was massive. And then uh, I went through a, a long period of looking for a rite of passage every year to create the growth for myself because they weren't being created for me. So, you know, I've done things like um, go into a cave in central Australia with no food or, or anything and spend, you know, three or four days there on my own, just meditating, feeling, thinking, reviewing my life. Um, uh, that, that was a big rite of passage. Uh, I know I've told you about this. I spent a night buried in the earth um, that was a major rite of passage, um, just completely powerless and um, very vulnerable and struggling to breathe and, um, yeah, cold, all, all of those things. But it, 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 it actually was the catalyst to my leaving medicine and basically giving away my medical practice and setting up the rites of passage work nationally. Um, yeah, and, and now I really feel like I'm in a rite of passage now as I move into elderhood and uh, it's it's a real letting go but I, I kind of feel like I've got one foot in the man world and one foot in the elder world and I'm calling it magi uh, and it's a Sufi word for wizard where, you know, I'm still young enough that I've got some man energy but I don't have the energy you have, Hunter. You know, there are things that you can do that I can't do anymore. Mm. Um, But I also have some elder energy. And so, you know, I think that this space is a really powerful space, but it's a humbling space. So I I feel like I will continue to go through rites of passage. uh, And and as challenging as the physical ones were when I was younger, the letting go in the elderhood and knowing that the prize at the end of elderhood is death is quite a big one. And knowing that, the, you know, and I'm really starting to feel this thing that death is coming for me mm. and I'm moving towards it. And it might be a month, a year, decade, 30 years, but there's still this realisation that, you know, life for me is, not, is no longer forever and death is for someone else. Death is coming in more as a real thing. So that's a big rite of passage I'm currently in. Just on the theme of death, I remember um, we were actually together the day that my grandfather died. Mm. And I remember 
um, we were having a conversation with a mutual friend and we started to talk about death and he was, he was mentioning um, his father was aging and I remember, again, this it was just so fa- fantastic for me to be a, in an intergenerational conversation listening to two older men talk about death and I remember you saying to, to him, well, if he's aging, you should be having this conversation with him about him facing his own mortality and what's your role as a son in, in supporting him through the stages and what he feels through. And we got on to the top topic of the book of the Tibetan art of living and dying. And um, I remember uh, what was discussed was the, the irony of the West who are obsessed with youthfulness, but the paradox in not, necessarily or the irony i should say is probably a better word the irony in not believing in life after death and that life that the death is just a transition into what's next and actually as we know if we just get a microscope on us all the way down we're just energy ultimately that fundamentally we know as a principle energy doesn't die energy just transforms and ultimately into consciousness right that's this discussion we were having and and I remember that just being a really big moment for me just witnessing a conversation of two men talking about one man's father and death and then also what was hugely awakening for me was really getting to kind of zoom out of my conditioned experience of going well there is so much conditioning around youthfulness and like obsession of longevity of life yet not believing in this concept of reincarnation or whatever transcends into what's next and you know again the the deep tragic and beautiful irony that you know probably about an hour later we we got a phone call that my grandfather who had a huge influence on my life um had had a heart attack whilst planting a tree at the age of 86 on a 40 degree day um and yeah, just what it, that day was a hugely, you know, talk about portal moments where things shift from one state to another. That was a day where I, I definitely grew up and, you know, I was definitely in a period of mush after that. And I remember buying the Tibetan art of living and dying and, and sitting down, actually had a conversation with my mum going, hey, we're kind of fucked if you die. So we need to have some conversations here because I don't know anything about how your life is structured, you know, if there's any money that we need to be aware of or housing or like what's the mortgage situation. That's all the logistics, but also interpersonally as a mother of, you know, five, like we need to talk about this because also the way that you're moving through the world, I don't think is a sustainable way to continue operating. And that also happened to be a very big inflection moment of her life. And I remember that was a really somewhat terrifying conversation to instigate with my mother, who, you know, was, uh, you know, early 50s at this stage, um, to then <laughs> to be like, let's talk about your death. Yeah. Um, but it's we w- it's still an ongoing conversation. Um so I love that you brought death into this because I yeah. don't see it talked about enough. Look, I'm so interested in all of these things that we seem to do the opposite to what we mm. could and should be doing them. And death is just such a great example. So having worked as a, a doctor, an emergency medicine doctor, and seen people die, you know, we, we sort of hide it away. We put it in another room and then we pull the curtain around it. A- and we don't talk about it and we don't even think about it. Or if we do think about it, for a lot of people, it's full of anxiety and fear. And yet 
I've also looked after people who've died at home and who've died surrounded by their loved ones and who've gone through the process of, first of all, denial and then, you know, eventually acceptance and then just moving into a place of love. And when I've been there present with people who've died well at home with their mm. loved ones or in a hospital well with their loved ones, the only time I've felt that particular energy in the, it that's in the room is when a baby's been born because I've also delivered babies. So how extraordinary that death, babies being born and death actually evoke a similar energy. And in fact, traditionally a midwife would work with both mid, babies being born wow. and people dying. And so a midwife, they are at that midpoint, that mush liminal point, they're the wife. They're marrying the in and out and the out and in. And, and I think that's a really beautiful thing and uh, it's astonishing. And then with my mother, um, who I did talk about death with and I was present when she died and it was one of the most loving experiences of my life, also it, incredible that with the most sadness, there was the most love. Mm. And then I remember going back up to my property uh, in Byron Bay and walking out because I'm on 150 acres so I've got big forests that I can walk in and I remember walking out and coming to one particular place that I love with some big trees and just standing there and looking at these magnificent trees and then noticing that in amongst the beautiful trees there's a dead tree and over here there's another dead tree and over there there's another dead tree and then seeing dead branches on the ground and then realising that all the hummus and compost on the ground was actually dead material and so in nature Death is not separated. It's all mixed in together. And you actually need the death to feed the next generation of nature that's growing up. Mm. Death is actually a completely necessary part of life and especially new life. Yeah. And that was so healing for me. It made me look at it in a completely different way. And even now, as I'm sort of doing this thing at the moment, coming up to 60 and thinking about the inevitability of death, I realise once I can really see death out there, really actually see it, feel it, that it gives me a choice. I can now either be anxious and, and depressed and afraid of the fact that it's inevitably going to be it's inevitably going to happen or I can go, right, I'm going to live life as fully as I can until then and mm. I'm going to have fun and joy and tell people who I love that I love them and, and go for it. Mm. And, and it is actually a choice yeah. and, and I'm very clear of the choice that I'm making. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I just want to pick up a, a little theme that goes back to the, um, you know, the conversations we're having around the edge and like accessing um, our inner edge and also the inner death or the micro death that happen as we move through our initiatory experiences. And you know, I'm a big, uh, I believe, and I study hermeticism, and one of the principles of hermeticism is as above, um, so below, as within, so without, as the universe, so the soul. And what I love is the principle, if I simplify that down to as above, so below, um, which basically means what, what is up is down. A great way to look at it is, is like a tree with roots in the ground. It's very similar to the tree with the, the branches outward. But the micro death of a rite of passage zoomed out to a, a macro death of our actual physical life has actually some of the same processes and feelings just at a different scale. Yes, and the most important thing there is that there is a death in a rite of passage and, in fact, in a lot of 
the traditional communities, the person going through the rite of passage would be decorated and painted in the death mask. So the only times they're in the death mask is when they actually die and during their rite of passage mm. because what they're really acknowledging is that it is a rite of passage but that, so that it is a death, it's a death of one stage but then it, there's a rebirth into another stage. Yeah. That It's not just a death. It's a death, a period of transformation, marsh, liminal space, and then a rebirth. Mm. And that is, is it's a key thing. And, and, and in my meditations now and the work I'm doing around death, uh, when I really go there, there's this weird thing that's starting to happen of uh, sometimes I'm kind of in the space and I'm like, oh, here I am, I'm in death. But there's still some sort of in it. There's something going on here, and it's almost like there's. I'm feeling like there's another something after it. I do not know what it is, but it's just this. And I hadn't expected it. I, I sort of did grow up thinking you die, you go in the ground, the worms eat you, and that's it. Mm. But it feels like there's something there. And, and then when you talked about energy, the other really big message that comes through for me is. I don't know what that energy is that's going to be around, but love is a big part of it. Yeah. It, it really comes back to love. A- and we can start practicing that. And every time I go to one of these places, you know, almost the biggest message that comes to me is just choose love, just be loving, just make decisions based on love. Uh, and that, that feeling, and I think part of elderhood is letting go of the judgment and the being right and the criticism and the knowing and being loving. Yeah. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about being there. It's about loving and, and, you know, finding different ways that we can love ourselves and we can love others and we can just love what's going on. Uh, I, one of the most transformative personal practices that has reshaped how I feel how I move through the world, how I treat others is actually loving the parts of myself that I've shamed the most. So it could have been incidents that happened all through my childhood or things that I don't love about how I feel or look or whatever it is, but like the, 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 the black box of shame that lives in my body and my psyche is, you know, in a really safe way, um, creating little ritual moments for myself to actually start to extract some of those things and start to love them. Um, as a literally almost a checklist and it, it has come it, the, the exchanges that I have to feel a lot of things that I've locked away and haven't even as I say this I'm like I can feel my body going fuck this um, but yeah I, as I've learned in my own maturity and inside of my masculinity is that no I know that this exchange is worth it and because in how I view the world is how I treat myself is actually how I treat you and how I treat you is how I treat myself in exchange. And if I'm, you know, judging someone else, often it's the biggest mirror back for what I judge about that part of myself. And and now just having a level of compassion about it, going, oh, fuck, I'm doing the thing again. Okay. And even, you know, as I shared at the beginning when we checked in, like what the conversation I had yesterday that was quite um, yeah, confronting and triggering for me, when I did the kind of reflection on it, it was just – aspects of my personality that actually just felt unseen and so last night I just did a little personal practice where I wrote down all the times um, where I didn't feel seen and actually just saw it with myself like I kind of gave myself that love that I wish I'd received in that moment and 
so much of me wanted to just watch Netflix and tune out and not feel the emotions and um, avoid. And as I'm starting to develop more safety with myself and more trust, it's easier to do those things, but it's still discipline and it's still a muscle and a choice. Um, and ultimately, I think coming back to when I'm in the presence of elders, it is this feeling of unconditional love. Now, unconditional love, what I'm learning is not unconditional tolerance, but it is unconditional love that I will still love you and I'll still accept you. And it doesn't mean I'm going to have to put up with all your nonsense. And I think that's when I feel like I'm in the presence of eldership. There is this like, there's this, there's this space like this cushiony, juicy space. That's like, I feel quite nurtured and held almost like in, in a womb type setup energetically. Um, but it, it's really rare to be in the presence of eldership. And I think, you know, someone who I know you, uh, you know, is one of your mentors, um, by extension of the internet has turned into one of mine, Michael Mead, um, talks about the concept of olders versus elders. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear your reflection on that. Yeah, well, we, we're not just an elder because of age. There is actually, you know, a lot of the older people these days check out. You know, they get an RV and they go travelling around the, the country and because there's no role for them anymore because, you know, Back in the day, a lot of people spent a lot of time with their grandparents, mm. being brought up by their grandparents. Uh, and now sort of people have moved away, communities are fractured, the kids are on their mobile devices. So the grandparents don't have that same role. Uh, in fact, there's a saying that traditionally grandparents and grandchildren have a special bond because they have a common enemy. And, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. But, but when the grandparents are taken out of the uh, equation, um, then they, you know, th there's a, th the young miss out because the beauty of grandparents and grandchildren is the gran if we put the grandparents in the elder role, the grandparents see the grandchildren and they, they, they acknowledge them and they pass on their wisdom and knowledge and share their stories. And that's all the stuff the kids want. They want to be seen, they want to be acknowledged, they want to hear stories. And then the, what the young ones give the grandparents is they give them energy and they give them purpose. And that's what the elders want, energy and purpose. And when you separate them and the kids don't spend time with them or on their mobile, what are, they, what are the grandparents supposed to do? So they go travelling or they play golf or they, you know, which is not necessarily all bad, but they could be doing so much more. And we've lost the eldering art, mm. the eldering knowing and so, you know, people like Michael Mead and, and there are some uh, – I'm starting to tap into some elder movements now. I'm just starting to read their emails. They used to send me their emails <laughs> and I'd immediately delete them. Uh, but now I'm sort of actually starting to read them. Yeah. And, and I think there's the great, you know, good elders. And, and uh, you know, what you talked about, the unconditional love, the way I would define it – is you can tell me the worst things about yourself and the things that you've done and, and, and that side of it, and I don't need to agree with them or support them or, or say, oh, that's okay, but I can keep loving you through that. Mm. In fact, I will tend to love you more mm. when you share that because I see that you're actually acknowledging your stuff and being vulnerable, and that actually evokes a love response in me. Mm. That's, that's that eldering that the love actually grows when you're real with me. Mm. That's the thing I think we want to be looking for. Hmm. Nice. 
in your experiences, I know you've done some. Uh, I might get the name wrong, but the death walking, a death walking course. Yeah. Um, how has that impacted you and your path to eldership? And like, what is the death walker course? Well, the death walker course was fabulous. Uh, a, a lot of it was about just how we logistically manage death, and that we talk about it, mm. and that we you know, work out a plan and a strategy to support this person to die in the best way. And, and, you know, in the Rite of Passage framework, there's a stage before death, but when we know it's happening, there's a stage when the death itself is happening and then there's a stage after the person has died and that then involves funeral, family and legalities. And, and all of those things can be done well and that includes for us. You know, we should all have a will. No matter what age we are, we should all have people knowing how we want our death to be managed. And and actually, I recently supported a, a really good friend of mine whose nine-year-old daughter died from a brain tumour. And she'd actually been diagnosed when she was two years old and they thought she only had 12 to 18 months. And miraculously, she lived fabulously for seven years and m- hundreds of people loved her and then the tumour came back and over a period of a couple of months she deteriorated and died. And it was an incredibly tragic event, but it was also, once again, unbelievably full of love and a rite of passage and brought the community together. And so, um, you know, I would recommend for men, you know, have conversations about death. Talk with your best mate about how they think about it, feel about it, if they even do. You know, how you would like to die. Um, you know, I'm starting to visualise a death um, where my hope is to be surrounded by, have my children and my loved ones around. I can actually see a multicoloured blanket for some reason. <laughs> and, and, you know, I would really like to die at home. Mm. And my, But my biggest hope around all of that is that I can die in a loving place. Mm. Now, I know my mother died in a loving place. And, and I spoke to her, she... She ended up uh, in intensive care a few days before she died. She was in hospital for a month and she was in intensive care and, and, and she said to me, you know, am I dying, Anna? Mm. I said, yeah, Mama, I think you probably are. And she said, I'm not afraid. You know, and she just looked at me and she just had so much love and I just had so much love for her. And, and um, you know, that for me was a real example of how you can do it sort of well and beautifully. And, you know, if you think about if we're going to evolve through our lives, ideally we would keep evolving right up until the point we die, even though everything else changes. But once again, I come back to this thing of, you know, the more loving we can be and, you know, we don't have to be afraid of it and resisting it and trying to put it off forever. You know, at a certain point when it's inevitable, are we actually able to embrace it and and be there and be present? And it's potentially one of the hardest things in the world to do, but it's also why most of the Eastern philosophies are all about talking about death. And in fact, they meditate about their own death from childhood for that exact, Mm. you know, reason to be prepared and to be in that 
loving space. Yeah, and what they say is that freedom is on the other side because they've grown up as part of their initiation is the death. And, you know, it's so amazing just like even the research I've done of the variety of old rituals or rites of passage, you know, throughout a variety of different cultures, like the one and and the, the prominence of the death theme. So, like, there was the, you know, amongst many others, the... Elysian mystery schools in ancient Greece and it was a 2,000 year rite of passage 2,000 year rite of passage that people came through all across Greece and went through this rite of passage and um, I think it may have been psychedelic induced is what they're now starting to work out Um, there's a book on this called the immortality key but they say that the secret that was shared that had to be earned was the first death so there was an, a, a deathly, deathly experience, but the initiates were then sworn to secrecy. So it kept the container. And again, coming back to that theme that there is this, once we come to terms with the mortality of this part of our experience, the freedom, the love, the abundance is on the other side. Yeah, there, there were a number of traditional communities who in the rite of passage for their boys would bury them. Mm. And basically, you know, um, simulate their death, mm. death of the boy. But you need the boy to die so the man can be born. And they would talk about how it takes a woman to birth the boy and, a, and it takes men to birth the man. Mm. And so that death thing is brought in very early. A- and, you know, the we've talked a lot about death here, um, but it also really gives us the opportunity to celebrate life. Mm. You know, my saying when someone close to me dies or unexpectedly dies is live life now. You know, because we, you know, it's going to happen for all of us. And whether it happens, you know, in a week, a month, a year, it is going to happen. So live life now, celebrate it, all and, and everything that comes along with that. Mm, I love that. So. Rite of passage, so people listening, you know, irrespective of what age they are, um, may be curious about rites of passage. What is a way that people, whether I might start from like um, from a friendship point of view, can friends take each other through a designed rite of passage? And then secondly, I'd love to hear there may be parents listening to this. What's what's the way that parents can can engage in a rite of passage too? Yeah. So, yes, I do think friends can take people through rites of passage, but in the actual rite of passage, they probably step out of the friend role into Mm. the facilitator role. The main thing is to really understand the framework and what you're trying to do. So it's intention and setting and and doing it well um, because when it's not done well, it can be very wounding and damaging. Uh, And a big part of... So our, our vision at the Rites of Passage Institute is to make rites of passage mainstream again, to bring them back. And in the same way as there are a number of ancient traditions that are now in the mainstream, like yoga and mindfulness meditation and psychedelics and having a big renaissance, all ancient thousands of year old traditions, rites of passage, I hope, will be you know, the next big thing that's like, how can we not be doing rites of passage? Mm. And so then it's about awareness that they're, that how necessary and the impact they have. And the, the step after that is understanding that there is a framework and that we can do it properly in our community for the right, you know, at 
and different in different stages. You know, so as I said a m- number of times, how you do a rite of passage for a 15-year-old will be different to a 40-year-old and a 60-year-old and someone becoming a parent and someone dying, but they're all rites of passage. So um, we uh, there are some great resources around, and one of the things that we do at the Rites of Passage Institute, we have online resources at our website, the ritesofpassageinstitute.org. If anybody Googles Rites of Passage, uh, the first thing they'll find is a tattoo show that's happening, but second or third thing they'll find is uh, the institute that we run. And then we also have a, an online program and we have a three-day Rites of Passage training into the framework of a rite of passage which we run mainly in byron bay but also other parts of australia and around the world so um yeah that's a great segue and you know our thing is to be open source we don't want to own all the rites of passage that are happening we want to train people so they can create their own rite of passage in their own way in their own community and whether that's for their family their school or even themselves but to give them the best support possible so they do it and have the best outcome possible. Mm, beautiful. And I've done that training, uh, geez, I did it you know, close to nine years ago and it, it really cracked me open. Uh, it was, it was, it was, uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, I can say it, it was like the medicine I didn't know that I was wanting. And um, it's something that my friends have done, colleagues um, are encouraged to do in the, the businesses that we run. Um, but the beautiful thing now is it, you know, the framework I use inside of um, processes like when some of my mates are becoming fathers. So we just designed a, a rite of passage for fatherhood for a, a great friend of ours and l- went through the map of the process. And, you know, it was really beautiful even to just sit down and hear um, other men share um, their wisdom around what it was like for them during the childbirth for them. And so this new father who or newly becoming father got to listen to that experience amongst many others. But also we've designed that process and put it over bucks parties. So yeah. actually it's an initiation into being a phenomenal, you know, partner, husband, to be father. Uh, and I think, you know, this is when we talk about mainstream is how do we already have these initiatory experiences. What does it look like to put a healthy framework and a healthy structure over these? Fantastic. You know, we're, we're bringing rites of passage into schools all around Australia and transforming their camps, which are basically activities-based, into rites of passage programs. Mm. And um, that's something I'm really excited about. And, yeah, I love hearing the Bucks Party thing because I've been involved in a number of those. And, uh, you know, when your child is leaving home, uh, or when you're about to, to go and start a new stage of your life, or when someone's becoming an elder, or a funeral. How do you do a funeral really well? So all of these uh, are rites of passage, and the more we understand the framework and we can bring the elements in, the better. Awesome. Okay, so just for anybody listening, ritesofpassageinstitute.org. Uh, you've also written a book, The Making of Men. Correct. I think we may have come on the title of your next book, The Art of Eldership. Thought I'd just drop that in there. Feel free to take that. Um, is there any other resources or anything that you would recommend for people? Uh, yeah, look, there are some great resources around. People like uh, Michael Mead. Uh, he, he's a, just a, a great leader. Um, Robert Bly, who wrote the book Iron John, you know, there's a lot that relate. When I read that, it's like, wow, I relate to this. And, and as I've read it multiple times yeah. since, I find that I relate to different parts of it, you know, 
depending on my current life place. Uh, Robert Moore wrote an incredible book called The Archetype of Initiation. The Archetype of Initiation. It's a brilliant uh, series of essays around initiation and rites of passage that I would recommend to anyone. Um, And uh, the final book I would recommend is called Betwixt and Between. Betwixt and Between, and it's open court publishing and it's a number of um, different authors talking about rites of passage for boys, for men, for elders, rites of passage into dying, uh, for girls, for women. Uh, it's just a really, you know, there are some chapters in there that are better than others, but it's a, it's a great book for people who are interested in this work. Mm. Awesome. Anna, thank you. Um, I just love the depth and breadth of what we can cover and I really hope that yeah, people listening this kind of cracked open some worlds for them and you've been an amazing supporter for me, not just inside of like, you know, my professional life, but in my journey into manhood and the different projects that I express out of myself and that's obviously Man Cave, but you've also been an incredible supporter of stuff as well. So I want to say thank you for the, the role you've played and, you know, been up to the property and, and seen stuff products in the outdoor bathrooms and, you know, uh, just want to say thank you particularly for that too. So everything we're doing at stuff helps fuel the movement of what we're trying to create. So thank you so much. And Hunter, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, there's nothing better as an older man to work with support, mentor, however you want to describe it, a younger man, and see that young man just eat it. Just take every little opportunity, go for it, find their own genius and spirit, bring that out into the world, influence people, um, continue to grow. You know, it, it's, it's, that's the sort of relationship it gives me energy and if it benefit, you know, benefits you. And so, uh, you know, I just feel honoured to have had this opportunity. And, yeah, like I said, it's a privilege and we ain't done yet, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Thank you. 